Welcome to Thought Leaders, a podcast dedicated to connecting you to visionaries and innovators in science, technology, and business. I'm Julie, and I'm pleased to be co-hosting today with Ron Rudnick. This is part two of three in our mini-series featuring Alistair Leslie, owner and manager of Brank's Home Brahmins. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the fascinating world of regenerative agriculture, specifically the sustainable methods and smart farm technologies that Alistair uses on his Australian cattle ranch with amazing success. So without further ado, let's get started. So in our last episode, you had mentioned that there are two very important sustainable farming methods that have been crucial to Brank's home Brahmin success. One of them was natural sequence farming, and then the other is ponded pastures. So to kick off this episode, can you start off by telling us about natural sequence farming? So natural sequence farming is really giving a name to a a concept that I think a lot of farmers have intuitively done over a long period of time. It was developed by a man called Peter Andrews, who was a a farmer here in Australia. He pioneered the natural sequence farming technique on on a place called Maloon Farm, which was in New South Wales. The principle of natural sequence farming is it's about slowing down the water that lands on your land. For example, here in Australia, what happened many, many years ago, Australia has a very dry climate and we often get very short bursts of intense rain. What would happen is that it would filter down through the entirety of the country and it would fill up these very shallow rivers and gently flow onto floodplains. When European settlement occurred, the first thing that many of the settlers did was start to drain many of these lands. So that's a traditional European way of farming is that you arrive on a land that's very wet. And the first thing you want to do is drain the water. You drain the water off the land so you can therefore kind of begin uh, plowing the land and planting crops. And that worked really well for a short period of time. But then what's happened now, kind of many years later after European settlement, is that we have a huge erosion problem over large parts of Australia. So a lot of these lands that have been farmed for many, many years are now eroding. The topsoils are kind of ever so slightly slipping away each year. And you get a lot of rundown of the pastures. I did some research prior to this podcast, and I was really surprised to learn that erosion and degradation affects up to two-thirds of the agricultural land in Australia. That is a really big number. Yeah, and adding to this, I heard that government officials created the first national soil policy in May of last year, which is a $200 million budget and 20-year plan dedicated to maintain and manage soil as it is a finite and valuable resource. With that being said, can you walk us through how natural sequence farming provides a real solution in comparison to traditional methods? So natural sequence farming, instead of plowing and pulling trees out and and kind of cultivating the land, really what the aim of the game is, is to put whatever barrier you can make. Some barriers are kind of with bulldozers. You can get land like a, a soil and pile the soil up and make levee banks, like a traditional kind of dam wall bank. Or you can make leaky weirs out of kind of uh, steel posts and you can put steel posts in creeks and, and, and just kind of stack tree branches against the steel posts. The water will always come down and follow the topography of the land. So everyone knows that the, the water comes off the mountains, it goes down to the creeks and it, and it kind of flows down the creeks. What was happening on Maloon Farm when Peter Andrews was initially there is he was noticing that they'd get 50 mils of rain, it would hit the property, it would run down the creek and it would be off the property in two hours time. The creek would run for a few hours and then maybe two days later there was no water in the creek it's kind of hit the property it's done and dusted it's out the farm and it's gone down to the next farm so what he went about doing is he went about going across the creek and putting in these leaky weirs so it's not damming the water back it's not quite a dam but what the aim of the game is is to hold that water back and encourage the water to seep into the land 
So then what happens is, is you put these structures up, you give it a year or two, and you notice that your land is a lot wetter for a lot longer. And also what happens is 50 mils of rain on your property does a lot more to your piece of land than your neighbor's piece of land because you're holding back that water. So 50 mils or 20 mils of rain is going to do a lot more to your land than the neighbor's property. And the reason is, is that you're able to infiltrate all that water. You're really trying to infiltrate all of the rain you get into the land because particularly here in Australia, we have a very variable climate. So it's, it's really not like a wet and dry season. You've just got rainfall events. You, you know, in the wet season this year, we had almost no rain in January, which is our wettest month of the year. So instead of viewing it as this is the rain season, we will get rain. You should instead view it as the rain's unpredictable. It will sometimes come, it sometimes won't. It will be very heavy sometimes. Sometimes it'll be very light. So really as a farmer, what you need to do is you need to systematically go about trying to infiltrate as much water as you can because you don't know when you're going to get it and you don't know how long it's going to be before you get more rain. So every little drop of rain you get, you've got to really make the most of it and you've got to try and build your system up to last long periods of drought. And that's where natural sequence farming has really come about. So a lot of the farms that have implemented it, um, you'll notice when you fly over the properties during the drought is that the grass is a lot greener for longer periods of time. It's still growing even well into a drought. And that's because the subsoil is really wet. It's really fully moistened the wet the subsoil. And that grass is able to access a lot more moisture because it's been properly infiltrated back into the soil. Right. And so with that being said, how does Branks Home re-engineer the land to work for natural sequence farming? And what has been the result? And what we do is we do a lot of contour banks. So we get graders to come out like a road grader. And we do very, very slight, really only a foot high little tiny contour banks and we do them particularly on the worst parts of the property so the parts of the property with the worst soil the very shallow soil and also where there's the most erosion that's the first place we go to the worst parts of the property are the first place we put the banks in and we've done that five years ago now a lot of those parts of the property that would never grow grass they were eroding they've now got huge big stands of rose grass and they're really kind of doing well and then what happens is is that you start growing more grass And then as the grass grows, you then infiltrate even more water because the best way to infiltrate water is to have a good body of grass when the water hits. If the water's hitting very, you know, overgrazed, shallow soils where there's no grass on the top of the ground and it's hitting a very kind of erodible subsoil, you're just going to lose your your soil. It just flows down the creek. Whereas you put these banks up, they grow more grass, you grow more grass, you infiltrate even more water. And it's kind of like a compounding interest effect. You put one small bank in, you come back in five years time, and it doesn't look anything like when you started. It just seems amazing that natural sequence farming can actually regenerate and restore damaged land. It's a really big deal. During an especially severe drought in 2018, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was actually featured by ABC News after hearing about the restorative results of natural sequence farming. When he visited the land that was using that technique, what he saw was farmland flowing with water and green vegetation. Moving on from natural sequence farming, can you tell us about ponded pasture, the other key sustainable farming technique used at Branksholm? Ponded pasture is really quite unique. This is now a bit more of a unique thing to the climate that we work in. So in coastal parts of Queensland, the protein drought has been well known for for generations that you get the wet season, the grasses grow really well. And then the moment the wet season stops, kind of uh, May, June, from May right through until November, at the end of the year, there's usually not much rain and the grasses progressively start to stop growing. So 
By the time you get to September, October in the part of Queensland that we work in, the grass is very low quality and really everyone's desperately waiting for the wet season. And unfortunately, in recent years, the wet season is becoming a lot more unpredictable, as you've mentioned. So with climate, it's, it's really being attributed to climate change, particularly now, because the wet season is starting a lot later. So we used to get some kind of early wet season showers in October. That hasn't happened for the entire time we've run Brank's Home. And certainly a few of the older generation guys that work for us can remember that when they were younger, they're the October storms. And really most of the young farmers in the region now, the people in their 30s and 40s have not really seen a good wet season in October. It hasn't happened. So now our wet season is really becoming more of a January start. So you've, you've got the same wet season, but it's now condensed between January and March. You've got all of the same amount of rain in three months of the year. And you're now, instead of having a six month wet season, six month dry season, it's more like a three month wet season, nine month dry season. So it's getting harder and harder to kind of keep the cattle going well for that longer period of the year. Much of what you're seeing resonates with a statement the Australian Academy of Science published in a paper last year, noting that Australia is Earth's driest inhabited continent and is especially vulnerable to the impacts of global warming. Consequences such as what Australian farmers are facing with dramatic changes involving weather patterns, such as frequent bushfires and loss of over 50% of the coral cover of the Great Barrier Reef, just to name a few. Given this, how do you utilize ponded pastures to overcome these challenges? That's where ponded pastures kind of come in in this region, because what we do is we get those same banks we do for natural sequence farming and we raise the heights of them and we try and hold a lot more water behind the banks. And really what we try and do is we have the water coming in the top of the catchment. We put one big bank at the top to try and slow the water down. And then we do a series of baffles afterwards. So we do zigzagging banks that are all quite shallow, only about a a meter high, these banks. And the water zigzags off the baffles. And it really, what you're trying to do is take the velocity out of the water. You want to slow the water down because anytime you have a fast moving body of water going down a hill, it's just going to blow holes through all the banks that you put up in front of it. So you want to slow the water down. And then what it does is it gently fills the first bank. And then the bywashes of that bank feed into all of the banks down below. So each bank bywashes into the next one. Instead of doing one really big bank to hold the water back, what we instead do is we do about 15 to 20 smaller banks. So we do small banks frequently. And then the other reason for that is because if one bank fails and it has a hole blown through the middle of it, it's not going to catastrophically destroy your system. It will just, it means the water doesn't stay as nicely in that spot, but it just moves into another bank and it's kind of as if nothing happened. And what we do behind these banks is that we plant a series of kind of aquatic grasses, like exotic grasses, the main ones being alum and grass and para grass. They're two different types of grasses from South America that were brought over to Australia many years ago. And we plant these grasses in these these ponded banks. And what happens is that these grasses are really thick and they kind of grow two meters tall, some of them, and they kind of densely take over the body of water. And what happens is the, the, the water fills up during the wet season. So these grasses are all actively growing. They're, they're, they're sticking their heads above the water. They grow to two meters tall. And we leave those grasses ungrazed. So we then take the cattle to other parts of the property. So everywhere in January, it's really easy to be a good farmer because everything's green, everything's growing, and it's not very hard to keep the cattle doing well. But to be a good farmer in the part of the region that we work in, it's really who's got the good quality cattle in September, October, because that's where it's getting tough. There's, there's no green grass. The production system we work on is, is a system where we want to gain weight every day of the year. But the season and the climate won't really allow for that. So the good farmers are the ones that have got nice, healthy cattle in October, November. That's really how you gauge if you're doing well. 
So for us in October, November, when the season gets tough, what we do is we just open the gate up and we let them go into the ponded pasture country. So as you just said, you've been developing more and more ponded pasture due to its success on your farm. How many acres do you currently have at Brank's home? So we, we started off with about 100 acres of ponded pasture and we're now approaching 650 acres. So we've um, every year we try and double the ponded pasture we've had. And we've done that for five years now. And on the other property, which I haven't really mentioned a great deal, it's a, it's a, a property very close to Branks and we bought that property a few years ago. Um, it's got 4,000 acres of ponded country there. So that's under, under development. Like it's got a bank that holds the tide back and it's got 4,000 acres of land that goes underwater each year. So that's really my protein supplement. So I don't buy cotton seed or do molasses. Wow, that's really impressive, especially given that in our prior episode, you mentioned that when you first started the farm and had received advice on how to adequately supplement the cattle, you were told that both cotton seed and molasses are a must. Do you have a systematic method to maximize the nutrient-rich benefits provided by ponded pastures? What we do is we just rotationally graze the cattle, which is another principle I haven't mentioned a huge deal about, but we rotationally graze in such a way that the cattle graze the worst quality land at the best time of the year. So we put the cattle in the, up in the hills where the, the land is really poor in the wet season because that land is only good for a month or two of the year and it's in the wet season when everything's growing. Then we take them off and we save the best quality land for the last part of the year. You've got to save your highest quality land for when it's the worst of the year and that's the ponded pasture country. So you put the cattle in there and it's really like a protein supplement for them. They'll eat the grass, the dry grass, and then they also eat these aquatic grasses that will continue growing because the aquatic grasses are always in water. So even in October, November, even when there's been no rain for nine months, you've put the, you've planted them in water. So the water just dries back. And what happens is as the water dries back, these grasses follow the water. They kind of grow in the deep bits during the wet season. And then they kind of grow out into the, the shallow bits by the end of the dry season. These grasses are really quite beautiful because what they do is they self-mulch. So you, you put the cattle in there, they eat all these grasses down to the ground or you know, down to kind of maybe 30 centimetres off the ground. And then we pull the cattle out. And what they're doing is they're recycling all of the, the nutrients there. So the cattle eat the grass, you've got fish and birds and the cattle kind of you know, are obviously living in these wetlands. The wetlands then fill up with water. You've got an anaerobic kind of environment under the water. And then you start building humus up on the bottom of these banks. So you start off with like a clay-based soil you plant these grasses and you come back in 10 years time, you've got a very thick humus down on the bottom of the, the banks and they fix their own nitrogen. Initially, the plants will fix nitrogen from bacteria in the soil. And then as time goes on, all of these plants will fix their own nitrogen. So there's enough kind of bacteria living in the, um, in the water that you kind of create your own sustainable ecosystem where the cattle can eat the grass, you pull them out and the nitrogen is, is free. It's fixed by the bacteria that live in, the, in these ponded pasture sequences. And um, in terms of the phosphorus and all the other kind of vitamins and minerals that cattle need, when you start holding the water back, you're catching all of the top nutrients from all of the land around you. So you're catching everything that's in the catchment. So these hills are naturally eroding for long periods of time with little bits of phosphorus, and you're concentrating all that phosphorus in one place because the water brings all the nutrients to you. With almost 5,000 acres of ponded pasture, is there ever a need to fertilize your property? So... You put the bank up and all of the phosphorus and all of the little you know, nutrients that you need are brought down to your, your ponded bank for you. So the grasses there do very well. We never fertilize. We've never, ever fertilized. And the grass gets better and better each year because it just keeps building. It's just like a big cycle. It keeps building off its own kind of uh, organic matter from year to year. What really resonates is the huge positive impact, both environmentally and economically, of sustainable farming techniques such as ponded pastures and natural sequence farming. 
Agreed. And it is so fascinating how you took the land, which was initially the big problem, you re-engineered it, reprogrammed it in a way to become a big time solution. That is most impressive. Let's just shift away from regenerative agriculture for a moment to an entirely different world, technology, specifically the smart farm technologies that have transformed your farm. Let's start with your sensors and internet. The sensors that we use are really based on LoRaWAN. So LoRaWAN is kind of a, a long range transmission protocol using radio signals. Now, in order for LoRa, LoRaWAN to work, these gateways need to be connected to the internet. So we've already got really high quality internet on Brainstone. What we've got is we've got the MBN fixed wireless internet to our house, which is a national broadband method of getting internet. But we more recently put Starlink into a lot of the properties. So Brainstone, we've got the Starlink dish. We haven't put up just yet, but we're now rolling out Starlink across all the properties. So we have a dual WAN setup. So we've got two sources of internet into the one property, and that's really high quality, fast internet. And that's what then enables us. We beam the internet around using Ubiquity products. So I don't have any sponsorship with any of these companies. I'm just mentioning the names so everyone can look them up at their, at their content. But Ubiquity is a really great company because it's got very kind of cheap, readily accessible internet equipment. That's initially quite difficult when you start using it, but there's a lot of YouTube tutorials. And I think most farmers are very kind of intuitive people. They can fix uh, tractors and stuff. I can't fix a tractor. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not very good at doing those traditional farming things, but if I can figure out the internet things, I'm sure the, uh, the farmers who are able to fix complex tractors and whatnot, they'll be able to fix the internet stuff very quickly themselves too. You just got to kind of watch the videos on YouTube. We then, so we set up the, the internet ourselves, my brother and myself. So we then put the, the nano beams and all of these different point-to-point -point internet beams across the property. So it comes to the house. We beam the internet to all of our sheds, all of our cattle yards, anywhere where there's power. So if you can see the house and there's power where you're standing, we'll get internet there. All we need is power and you need line of sight to the house. So that's all we do. We just beam internet everywhere. Now that we've done that over a few years, we have these LoRaWAN gateways. So we've only just put them in, in the last kind of nine months. We then plug them into all of the different kind of outposts of the internet on the property. And the LoRaWAN gateways then spread LoRaWAN, kind of the LoRa signal about three to four kilometers. So because the internet's already so good on the property, we only had to put about four LoRaWAN gateways in, which cost about $600 each. So it's a couple thousand dollars of LoRaWAN gateways and our entire property was covered with LoRaWAN. What if the internet crashes? This could really cause all kinds of problems. Have you integrated all elements together into a fail-safe system? We also put in kind of redundant LoRaWAN gateways too. So instead of having a perfect coverage with four gateways, I actually did six gateways and I put a gateway at the top of one of the hills that covers the whole property on its own. And I did that one using um, kind of LTE signal instead of relying on the internet. And the reason I did that one was because I wanted redundancy. So if my internet went down, I'd lose all my LoRaWAN. I've still got one gateway that runs on kind of LTE at the top of the hill, and it should cover the entire property. That, that's another thing with the technology. If you start implementing it, you need to think about redundancy. You need to plan for things to fail. So I've never had it fail. Everything's worked beautifully so far. But if something did go wrong, like my LTE one went down, I'd still have my baseline LAN-based LoRaWAN. And if my internet went down, I'd still have my LTE-based one at the top of the hill. So that's how we get the coverage across the property. And then there's really as many sensors you can think of that use LoRaWAN. So the first ones that we put in were water. What was behind your decision to pivot away from Australia's traditional water monitoring approach? I think water monitoring 
In terms of return on investment, it's got one of the best evidence bases here in Australia. So there's a lot of really good articles published by the Australian government as to, um, and there's a lot of people that are working really hard. It's just like in medicine, there's people doing trials all the time. There's new ways of doing things all the time and there's new evidence emerging all the time. So here in Australia, one of the, the easiest and quickest return on investments is water monitoring. So traditionally, people would have someone employed on properties called a bore runner, it's particularly the bigger properties that have bore runners who are people that have a ute and they wake up each day and they often drive two to 300 kilometers, which is about you know, 100, 150 miles a day, driving around, checking that the bores and the dams are filled with water. Because on some of these properties in Australia, you, you're kind of driving 200 miles and you haven't left your own property. You haven't even made it to the front gate yet. Like the, the size of some of these properties is just, it's the size of some small European countries. So you would traditionally employ a bore runner and these people would just go around and check all the bores. And the first time they'd realize there's a problem is when they pull up and notice water on the ground. And then they've got to try and troubleshoot, figure out why there's a problem and then fix it on the spot. Just the idea of having water data calibrated and displayed on a digital dashboard seems light years ahead of having a solo worker driving imprecisely and inefficiently checking on thousands of acres of land. Yeah, it is definitely a major improvement to say the least. Are there any other water monitoring technologies that you use at Brank's Home? With us, what we do now is we've got all of these water sensors. We've got tank sensors so we can see how full or empty a tank is. We've got pressure sensors in the, type, in the pipeline. The reason we use pressure sensors is because your, your pump, if it's working, should maintain a pressure. Like most pumps have a pressure cutoff switch. So the pumps, the, the way they pump or don't pump is based on the pressure of the pipeline. So if you put a sensor on the pipeline with a pressure cutoff, if the pressure is meant to be 30 PSI and the pressure reading is saying it's 15 PSI and it's been sitting there for 12 hours, you know that the pump's not working. The pump hasn't kicked back in to push the pressure up to 30 PSI. The other way, the other thing we do is we have flow meters so you can see flow of water. So if your pressure goes down to 15 PSI when it should be 30, and yet you've got flow in the pipeline, there's water flowing through your pipeline, you've lost a lot of pressure in the pipeline. So you've got a burst pipe somewhere. And if you put the pressure and flow uh, sensors often enough in your pipelines, you can actually, even from Adelaide, you can see very quickly where the problem is because you can see there's water getting here, this tank's filling up, there's water in the trough next to it there's loss of pressure in the pipeline and I'm still getting flow further down. And the pressure differential between here, point A and point B, there's more pressure at point A and then I lose a lot of pressure at point B. So it must be between point A and point B, I've got the burst pipeline. So when you send people to go check the water, instead of the bore runner going up there and, and you know finding that the tank's not filling and then having to find the pipeline where the problem is, you can ring them up in the morning and say, hey, just letting you know, there's definitely a split pipeline bring your gloves, bring your shovel. You're going to be digging up the pipeline. It's going to be somewhere here. That's incredible. It sounds like these sensors are providing very important data-driven insights on what is precisely happening on your farm. Down to that smallest pipe, something that could take months to figure out what's wrong when it's approached the traditional way. Do you have an example or an experience you may have had prior to installing water sensors on Brank's home that in some way catalyze your decision to adopt sensor technology. This is one of the things I, that happened in my gap year when I was up there in 2015. We'd be out there and we'd find a pipeline and it'd be the wrong size fitting. You'd be two hours away from the nearest store. You're about a 40 minute drive from your house on your own property and you've got the wrong, you grab the wrong fitting by mistake because just like, you know, we're, we're humans, we make mistakes and you kind of go, oh, I've got the wrong fitting. 
So then you've got to kind of drive back to the house, find the right fitting. You don't have the right fitting. So you've got to ring the shop in Rockhampton, see if they've got a fitting. They don't have one. You've got to ring your neighbor. It's just, it, that's kind of how it would traditionally work. You just hope you've got the right stuff to fix the problem. Whereas now, instead of being reactionary, we're kind of preemptively fixing things. So you can see, for example, that the pressure is dropping very quickly in a certain pipeline. So you might have a small leak. So instead of waiting for the leak to become a big leak and burst the pipeline, I'm already sending people out to check the pipeline to make sure there's no problem. Rangtom has an extensive network of pumps, dams, bores, pipes that, like any other physical structure, can break down. Even with technology, managing these physical infrastructures can be unpredictable. So how do you stay in front of this? We do six monthly maintenance on the property with all of our solar bores. So I get these people to come down from one of the towns in Mackay and service all of my pumps every six months. And the way that I can justify that cost is because if there's any problems on the farm, I don't just call them down to come down straight away because there's a huge call out fee. It costs us about $1,500 just to get someone to come to the property. They have to drive two hours to get to us. So instead, what I do is I have redundant systems where I've got my solar bores, my dams. And if one solar bore goes down, it's okay. I've got two more. And if all my solar bores go down, that's okay because I've got two dams. And if one of my dams goes down, that's still okay because I've still got another dam with a separate source of water. And if that dam has a pump problem, that's okay too, because I've got two dams with two, uh, two uh, pumps on that dam with two different feed lines, with two different supply lines back up to the house. So you've got redundancy built into the system and you just accumulate the problems. You know where the problems are. And then when these guys come every six months, they have a huge full two days worth of fixing stuff. They fix all the stuff every six months, as opposed to what would used to happen which is that we get up there, we'd find a burst pipe, we had no backup, no redundancy, and you're, you're frantically ringing people to try and get them to come down and help you. How have sensors been crucial in managing your farm's sprawling water infrastructure? Now I can monitor things. I can see when things are going wrong. I can really effectively use my labor. So if I've got someone driving up to come to the property to come you know, work on the property for cattle mustering and they live in the town, I can ring them and say, hey, look, before you come up, can you bring this or can you bring that i've just realized something's gone wrong can you bring a few spare float valves because there's something wrong with the tank it's probably going to be a float valve i don't think we have any spares can you get some spares before you come up and you can tell all of that just from a tank sensor just from one tank sensor a pressure sensor and a flow sensor just those few little bits of data is all you need to actually you know accurately diagnose probably more than 90 percent of the problems you get on a daily basis on the farm with a major improvement in efficiency using water sensors what has been your return on investment from implementing this technology? And I reckon it returned its investment probably within six months for us. Usually the sensors run about $800 here in Australia. I'm not sure in America how much they cost, but it's about $800 per sensor. And we put out probably 10 sensors. So we probably spent about $8,000 on the sensors. And just one six monthly visit for me to get these guys to do maintenance is usually about $6,000. So just by avoiding two call-outs with the guys that fix all the pumps for us, you've already paid back the investment on those sensors. That is really great to hear and truly proves that although it is quite expensive to adopt initially, in the long run, the technology is well worth the investment. Moving away from the topic of water sensors, I understand you also have multiple all-terrain vehicles and tractors on your property. How do you manage the logistical challenges of farm machinery navigating a property the size of Brank's home? Now, vehicle tracking sounds a bit strange when you first say it. You say, I track all the quad bikes, I track all the tractors on the property. It actually makes a bit more sense than you might think at first glance, because the first thing is that often I'm sending you know, people up to work on the farm that are often up there on their own. So they're on, on 10 or 20,000 acre property. 
where if you break down, I mean, I've, I've broken down the property when I was a lot younger and it took me two hours to walk back to the house. So if you don't have water and you don't have, you know, it's a bit of a strange concept but when you leave the house in the morning, you check, you've got your, you know, your phone and you're walking, talking, you check, you've got water and some food, because if you get, you get in trouble on the farm, you, you know, you're going to be out there and having lunch out there because you can't get back in time. From your experience, has vehicle tracking sensors resulted in a big improvement in worker visibility and safety? So when people are out on the farm working up there, it's really nice for us now because I can actually see with the LoRaWAN where all the vehicles are and you can see where they are, where they've been, and you can see which direction they're going and how fast they're going. So it's just a few little bits of data. It's a very simple sensor. It's got an accelerometer, GPS coordinates, and it's got a... um, g-force meter and all these other things inside the sensor essentially what we do now is when someone goes on the farm if a vehicle stops for a long period of time you immediately start getting worried right you ring if if someone you know stops the vehicle in a strange spot and they've been in the same spot for two hours it will send you an alert on your phone saying hey the, the coordinate this this vehicle is not at the home base it's out in the property and it's been in the same spot for two hours is everything okay and that's the prompt for us to ring and say hey is everything going okay yep i'm just fixing a pipeline it's all good it's, um, I'm just, you know, digging up the, the, the pipe. It's, you know, no problems. Whereas in the past, you would just, people would go there. And if any, any trouble happened, you, you wouldn't know about it. You wouldn't know where people were. Um, so it's really a safety thing more than anything else. For us, it gives us a lot of peace of mind knowing that when the employees are up there working, you can see exactly where people are. You can see where they've been, where they're moving to. And if, if someone rolls over a quad bike with the G-force meters and the accelerometers inside these sensors, it will send you an alert to say, hey, the quad bike is upside down. That's not normal. So there's a problem because the, the sensor knows which way's up and which way's down. So a quad bike shouldn't be upside down. So if your, your quad bike goes upside down, it immediately sends a, an alert. And it's pretty interesting because in Sydney and, and Adelaide, I'll, I'll be at the hospital, I'll get an alert to say the quad bike's gone upside down on the property. Worker visibility and safety are clearly at the top of the list of benefits of vehicle tracking. Let's shift focus just a bit. Tell me about the business case for vehicle tracking sensors on your farm. The other thing as well is that with these sensors, you can see how many kilometers the vehicles have traveled. So it's great for routine servicing. So on a property, often you have a few vehicles that are used a lot more than the other ones. So it doesn't really make sense to bring a mechanic up every six months and service all of your vehicles as if they're the same, because it's not really the case. You've got maybe two or three vehicles that do 90% of the work and then a bunch of other vehicles that need just preventative maintenance. So now we're a lot smarter with how we do our maintenance because we know that there's two vehicles that do all of the work. So those two vehicles get very regular servicing and then the rest of the vehicles get once yearly servicing. So we're much smarter in how we use our mechanics and how we use our parts because we spend all the time and effort on just those two vehicles that are used the most. And then we, we service the other vehicles that we know don't get used very often because there are backup vehicles if the first vehicle goes down. So that's yeah. just a few of the sensors more recently we've been using. It's kind of, um, it's really about the efficiencies of labor because labor is always the biggest cost on these farms. It's usually 30% of your total cost base on a farm is labor, if not more on some other properties. So you need to be really smart with how you use your labor. You've got to be very, very effective on using your labor, particularly with beef prices fluctuating. Sometimes you've got lots of spare cash and other times it's very tight with cash. You've got to be able to use your labor effectively. And, that, and the sensors really enable us to do that. Technology has clearly been a real game changer for Brangsol. However, new solutions almost always come with a new set of problems. So in your experience, what are some of the challenges and unintended consequences of using technology at Brank's home? Well, one of the first cons is the fact that I can give an example just from a few days ago. So at the farm, one of our alarms started going off. And of course, it's me and my dad that get the alert. 
So my manager, the, the person, we've got people that work for us up there, but um, it's actually us, the people in Sydney and Adelaide, that get all the alerts on the apps. So you get, a, you get a final alert at kind of 12 o'clock at night to say there's an alarm going off in the house. It's very often a false alarm and it almost always is a false alarm, but it's left to you to manage that at kind of 12 o'clock at night being remote. So you have to then make phone calls to get people to go there to check things out. So one of the big problems with the tech is that if for it to work well, either you need to receive all of the alerts because when you start putting these things in, you generate a huge amount of alerts and a lot of them end up being fake alerts that kind of, they just kind of, it's white noise. You have to try and interpret what's real and what's not with all the data you're generating. And particularly where I run the farm in Queensland, a lot of the people that work for me are kind of relatively old. So like I've got the, the median age, for example, the people that work on the farm at Brankstone would be probably over 50. The manager up there right now is 74. So we, we have a lot of kind of more elderly people that are not necessarily keen to have alerts at 12 o'clock at night with alarms. So it's kind of left to us to, to get the alerts. And then often we have to kind of ring people and try and filter with the filter between the kind of technology and kind of telling people what to make of it. So that role is, is a little bit difficult sometimes, particularly when you start getting more and more sensors, bigger and bigger farms, you then have to kind of find some way of filtering that data. So for us, the kind of direction at the moment is getting someone who would be able to do that, like employ someone who would be living on site, just like a manager, like a caretaker. But one of their big roles is to interpret that data. They'd be getting the alerts just like us and they would go and have the initiative to go check that the, the sensor is real or not real. It just seems intuitive and, and inevitable and even natural that as agriculture continues to adopt technology, farm managers of the future, they'll just need to have skills more similar to a data scientist or engineer. Staying with technology, everyone is intrigued by the latest capabilities and applications of drones. How do you use drones at Brank's home? Sure. I mean, uh, we used a drone just yesterday, actually. So one of the ways that we use drones now on the farm is it's real-time satellite imagery for us. So you've also got your satellites, your weather satellites. You can look at, you know, over the farm each few days just using that general data. But with a drone, you can get much, much better high quality data mapping of the farm. So we put the, um, the drones up and we map out the entire property. It sounds like it's a big process. It's really not. There's a good app called Drone Deploy. It's expensive, but you, you can pay for these kind of apps where essentially it autopilots the drone. You literally just plug the drone in, you go down there, you have a cup of coffee and you just um, have the batteries there and the drone flies itself away, takes photos, comes back when it's getting flat. You just pop the new battery in, put the other on the charge, and you just sit there for maybe you know two hours or so while it maps out the entire property. How do you use the data gathered from mapping the property? It lets us get a feed budget. So it, it shows us where the grass has been eaten. So you can put the, the cattle in a big paddock and you think that they've eaten the entire paddock to an even level, and that's never the case. When you take them out of the paddock, you can map it. And you can see that there's big parts of the, of the paddock that are getting overgrazed and there's parts of the paddock that are getting undergrazed. So it makes us then target those areas more efficiently. Instead of just driving around and saying, it doesn't look like they've eaten much grass here, you have good evidence where you can see that the grass from a drone, when it maps out, it shows you that there's no grass been eaten in that area. So instead for us, we then target that area. We need to put banks in there. We need to put more legumes in there. We need to make that area. The cattle are telling us they don't want to eat what's there. So we need to grow different types of grass or have a more diverse offering in that part of the paddock. It's really interesting that the grazing data provided by the drones is in a way a form of super valuable feedback directly from your livestock. What are other important drone applications for your farm? The other bit is weed spraying as well. So obviously on a farm, 
even though we're trying to be as sustainable as possible, we still need to use herbicides to get on, on top of some weeds. And the drones are really, really useful for that. So we can map out exactly where the weeds are growing. We can do a targeted herbicide campaign. So, you know, last week, for example, we sprayed about 200 acres of one of the properties for prickly bush and prickly acacia. So we sprayed it and we kind of mapped out with a drone to get exactly the spots that we wanted to go. So I got my quote was really accurate because I was able to show them exactly where I wanted them to spray and where I didn't want them to spray because I didn't want them spraying my mango trees at my house, which you know sounds silly, but you'd be surprised when people get up there in a helicopter and start spraying, you, you know, things can happen. So we had very specific GPS coordinates of where we wanted them to spray and didn't want them to spray. And then now it's been about, you know, it's yesterday we did that. So we'll give it a few more weeks and then maybe in a month's time, we'll go up there and remap that paddock and you'll start to see the, the trees kind of dying. You'll start to see the herbicide taking effect and then you can map it again in kind of another two months time and you can see the kind of end outcome of the paddock. So drone mapping is really high quality mapping and you can do it as regularly as you need to. So when you're doing interventions on the property, you can look to see if it's working all the time. You get real-time feedback. You, you do it, and then in a month's time, you can get actual numbers. Instead of someone saying, oh, it looks like it's working, you can look and say, hey, we've missed the spot here. There's obviously more types of trees in this, this part of the paddock that are resistant to the herbicide, so let's get on top of it now. Let's get a different type of herbicide, do some follow-up control. It gives you a lot more visibility. Drone accuracy and efficiency is really just remarkable. Um, when I think of precision agriculture, one of the first things that comes to mind is the real rapid advancement of drone technology. There's some other more unique uses of the drones that we've not quite done yet. One of them is drone mustering. That's becoming a bit more of a popular thing here in Australia with different, with active tracking features of the drones. There's a lot of people trying to use drones to muster the cattle. Uh, we, we personally choose to muster with horses and, and, and dogs and whatnot because of other reasons, because we like to have that interaction with the cattle and get them used to humans from a young age. But some people on bigger properties are trying to use drones to push the cattle out of kind of wooded areas. You fly the drone above the trees and try and scare the cattle out into an open area where you can then muster them more easily. And another use of the drones is on very sensitive areas of the property. Like for example, we've got you know, weeds that grow right up to the edge of the ocean. You don't want to be getting a helicopter and spraying huge amounts of chemical where it's going to drift onto mangroves and kill really important you know, species of native vegetation. So in those spots, you get a drone and you can put either chemicals or granular pellets of chemicals inside the drone and you can fly virtually centimetres on top of the tree and just drop it exactly on that one tree and it will only affect that one part where you are. You're very, very accurate use of chemicals. What really strikes me about drones is their precision and their versatility. As drones are continuously equipped with the latest AI and imaging technology, I can only see the value to farmers increasing. Really, the sky's the limit. The Queensland government recently published a report stating that the global agricultural drone technology market is forecast to hit $8.4 billion in 2026, up from 1.9 billion in 2021. Really impressive that over a few short years, you took a neglected, tired, eroding, even parched farmland and through a combination of technology and progressive sustainable methods, regenerated it into a really thriving agricultural ecosystem. Thank you, Alistair, for sharing your amazing knowledge and your always terrific insights. With that being said, this brings us to the end of part two of our conversation with Alistair Leslie. 
In the concluding episode, Alistair provides an in-depth look at the three successful but very different approaches used by bee farmers in Australia, as well as a fascinating discussion on emerging technologies such as developing CRISPR gene-edited cattle. So we hope you stay tuned for that one. If you would like to learn more about thought leaders, please check out apollo-institute.org forward slash thought leaders, where you'll also find useful and interesting photos, images, and diagrams on all the important topics we discussed today. 